0: welcome to the how of business with henry lopez and david begin the podcast that helps you start run and grow your small business and now here are your hosts
1: welcome to this episode of the how of business this is henry lopez my guest today is dr peter mcgraw dr mcgraw welcome to the show thanks for having me henry i'm looking forward to it uh we're gonna learn about how how we can leverage humor to help us better manage and grow our small business without having to necessarily tell jokes or be a comedian Uh, Dr. McGraw has studied humor extensively, and he's the author of two books on the subject and how it can benefit us in our small business. To receive more information about the Howa business, including links to the show notes page for this episode, just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996. So let me tell you more about Peter. Dr. Peter McGraw is a behavioral economist and scientist, a professional speaker, and an expert on the scientific study of humor. He's a marketing and psychology professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, where he investigates the interplay of emotions, judgment, and choice. And I'll have him explain what he means by that. His research has been covered by the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, NPR, BBC, Times, CNN, Wired, and the Harvard Business Review. Peter teaches graduate courses in behavior economics for the University of Colorado Boulder and MBA courses in marketing management for London Business School. University of California's San Diego's Rady, is it Rady or Rady School? Uh, Rady. Rady, Rady School. And University of Colorado Boulder. He speaks at Fortune 500 companies, public events, and universities around the world. As a director of the Humor Research Lab, otherwise known as HURL, he has spent 10 years studying humor. And in 2014, he co authored the book, The Humor Code, a global search for what makes things funny. And his most recent book, stick to business, what the masters of comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. He's also a podcaster himself. He has several podcasts, including I'm Not Joking, and his most recent project, Solo. And so that's uh, the, the, the I'm Not Joking podcast looks at the lives of funny people from entertainment, business, science, and the arts. And then he also hosts Funny or True, a live comedy game show, that pits comedians against scientists to see who has the best blend of brains and funny bone. In other words, Peter's got a lot going on. <laughs> <laughs> he lives currently in the Los Angeles, California area. So once again, Dr. Peter McGraw, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so thanks so much, Henry. You're a pro and you, uh, <laughs> you make it seem like I know what I'm talking about. So thank you for that. Well, you've been at it for a while when I was first <laughs> this idea
1: it was intriguing. You know, we're fortunate at my show, I'm in at episode 320 something. And so I can be very selective and this is not anything we have covered before in the show. So i found it intriguing, especially because I'm always, always interested in the creative side of things and how we tap into creativity. And so I know our conversation will go there, but let's dive into this topic of using humor to, as I call it, grow our business or start a business, but just as entrepreneurs. I'm curious though, how did you come to develop this interest in comedy and especially how it applies to business? Where does this come from for you?
0: Sure. You know, the one quick note about your bio of me is there is something about just working in an area for a long time. You know, we have this tendency to think about, about the kind of Renaissance person, but usually what it is, is a, it's actually a serial endeavor. Uh, so Steve Martin has this. In some ways, Steve Martin is like an ideal person for us to chat about mm-hmm. as we talk about building a business. When you look at Steve Martin's resume, you just say, wow, what a, what a renaissance person, right? So stand-up, Saturday Night Live, movies, writing, directing. He just won a, a Grammy for banjo play. Mm-hmm. But when you look at his career, he mastered stand-up. Then he moved on to television. Then on to movies. Then on to, you know, that that um, he's very methodical about how he he did this, and I think that this is often the same for people who are looking to build a business. You just build, you know. Elon Musk is the is the exception that proves the rule, right? You know, having five five businesses going simultaneously. Like you just get the one done, and then you leverage your experience and opportunities from that one for the next one. The the idea, though, and and really that's what happened to me. I got pretty good at behavioral economics at studying emotions and decision making in the first ten years of my of my career. And then when I stumbled on the question of what makes things funny, this is an age old question, people. Intellectual giants have tried to tackle this question, people way smarter than me, but I was in the right place at the right time. That is, I had enough perspective to know that the existing accounts were wrong and I had a tool in my tool belt, which is the experiment that had only been recently invented so to speak. you know Aristotle and Plato and Immanuel Kant and Thomas Hobbes, they didn't know how to run experiments. They could do thought experiments, but they couldn't run real experiments. And so I recognized there was an opportunity for me to make a, a difference, so to speak, and to, to help answer this perplexing question.
1: So a couple of things, I wanna explore one thing you mentioned uh, a moment ago. So you do believe, as it comes to life or a business, obviously, as we're applying it here in focusing on one thing until you've mastered it versus trying to be good at multiple things?
0: Well, I I would say this is, I like the idea of getting good enough at something that you can add it to your tool belt. I don't think that you have to become world-class in everything. So uh, speaking of funny people, he's not a comedian per se, but the cartoonist, Scott Adams talks about having a skill stack Mm -hmm. or a talent stack. Mm -hmm. That is where you're in the top 75% in two, three, four, or five things. And then the combination of those things allow you to become elite in in some area or in, in some endeavor. But I do think that you can spread yourself too thin that almost anything that I've become very good at took a lot of attention a lot of effort and a lot of problem solving frankly in order to be able to do this so you know in your case as a podcaster what did i say when we first started i said henry you're a pro and i know this because i get interviewed a lot for podcasts and i so i have i've seen the full range of things i see how methodically you you approach this craft Um your listeners benefit from it. They don't get to see it, but, but you got really good at this. And I have a feeling your first five episodes aren't as good as your last five episodes for that (laughs) very reason. Precisely.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate that.
0: Yeah. So the, so the idea though, is I, I think that, and I can tell you a little bit about what makes things funny. And I think your listeners will find that, that interesting. And it'll solve a curiosity but one of the things that i think is really important for them is i actually don't think that being funny is the most important thing for them as they look to de- to develop their business idea as they look to turn their micro business into into a big business as they as they start to explore their next big thing what i think is the case and this is this has been my attempt to try to bring my day job teaching mbas and my night job decoding comedy together. And that was, I don't want people to be funny. I mean, look, if you're naturally funny, by all means lean into it. But I want people to think funny. That is, I want them to think like the world's funniest people mm-hmm. because the world's funniest people are among the most imaginative, creative, innovative people on the planet. And, and they're they're natural risk takers. They're willing to break rules, and when you think about business and the failure rates associated with entrepreneurial endeavors, playing it safe is the wrong way to go. And following the crowd and doing what everybody else is doing is the wrong way to go. And, and so comics recognize that they have to be different from everyone else, and they have to be different than the person they were a year ago or two years ago or five years ago. That there are there are useful lessons to learn from them.
1: Absolutely, I think that's going to be the key takeaway from this conversation. We're going to dive into that. When you were young, when you were a kid,
0: were you a funny person? Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, I would say, I would say that I was never like the kid who made the parents laugh at the dinner table. You know, I wasn't the. No one ever pulled me aside and said, "Pete, you should become a stand-up comic." But I, compared to the average professor, I'm hilarious. <laughs> you know, I mean, but that's just a matter of just being in the right pond, you right. know, frankly. That's right. And so my desire to study comedy didn't, didn't come out of personal passion, to be honest. It actually came out of op- opportunity. It just seemed like a perplexing, important question that I had the skills to solve. Were you a student
1: of comedy? and When did you recognize, ah, what these guys do can be applied in so many ways as you just introduced to business or to delivering a lecture for that
0: matter? It was about three years ago. I'll be honest. It was about three, maybe four years ago. And I'll tell you how it came about was I started off answering the question, what makes things funny? I started thinking about the consequences of being funny or not the, basically the, the costs and benefits of it. And then I was, I was trying to find a way to speak to an audience like yours. And my first instinct was to tell people to go forth and be funny. <laughs> and, um, and then what, what I realized was that's not good advice. And the reason it's not good advice is because it's so tremendously difficult to do it. It's easier to fail than it is to succeed. And that failing is worse than succeeding is good. And so I, I let myself abandon that idea. Because I couldn't, I couldn't stand in a ballroom on a stage in front of a thousand people and tell everybody to go forth and be funny. Right. Because you got to be worried about that guy. You know, the guy who thinks he's funny, who makes everybody's life miserable. (laughs) And so it was actually, um, a problem that I had to solve was I was in Google had invited me to give a talk to their, some of their salespeople. And I, I had cold feet to give the talk about be funny. And then I had a moment, you know, it's one of these things like these moments of inspiration, these flashes of brilliance, they don't happen out of nowhere they happen because you have been thinking about something for a long time right you've been together, reading right? about yeah. it yeah yeah you're writing about it and so on and so so it came to me in that moment oh and i remember my initial talk was you know 10 things we can learn from the masters of comedy without being funny and um and it was about these practices and perspectives that's the stuff that, and then that, that obviously got published in my second book, Stick to Business. So the first book was about what makes things funny. And the second book was how to, how to learn from the process of becoming funny. Okay.
1: All right. And so before we move on to that, what, what is your interpretation, definition of what makes something funny? I'm curious as to your thought on that.
0: Sure. So it's, it's actually a surprisingly simple idea, as all good ideas tend to be where simple is better than complex. So if, if in 2010, actually 2008, when I first stumbled on the question of what makes things funny, if you typed into Google, what makes things funny, you're not gonna find my account of it. You're going to find basically three class, sort of classifications of, of humor theory. One, superiority theory. We laugh at the follies and foibles of others. Comedy has, has winners and losers, and the winners laugh at the losers. Two, something called relief or release theory, which is basically a way for us to kind of let out the kind of taboo thoughts and feelings and motivations that we have into the world in, you know, through, through comedy. It's kind of a release valve. And three, and the big one, is this notion of incongruities that we laugh at things, some mismatch between what we expect and what we get in the world. Now that bothered me because in the rest of the sciences, there's no, there's not three different theories of fear, for example, you know? And so I was like, there has to be one overarching explanation for this. And the work that I did, and I collaborated with a graduate student who's now a tenured professor, Caleb Warren, revealed that we laugh at, we're amused by, and judge funny things that are wrong yet okay things that are threatening yet safe, things that don't make sense yet make sense, or as we call them, benign violations. The things that we laugh at have both this sort of violating element to it, threatens the way that we believe the world ought to be, while also seemingly are acceptable, safe, and okay.
1: And it's fairly universal, you would say?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I can't claim that it explains everything, but I can can tell you this it explains more than than the other theories so i yeah. i like to say i have the fastest horse in the race and and importantly it it doesn't just explain what makes something funny it also explains what makes something not funny hmm. and that's where its advantage lies because it can differentiate the joke that causes you to yawn there's not enough of a violation and the ca- and the joke that makes you outraged there it's not benign enough and so it talks about the, this sort of sweet spot between boring and offensive. Yeah,
1: it brings to mind. Uh, I just recently saw Eddie Izzard, who's one of mm. my favorite stand-ups. Yes, and he he does uh, fairly same routine. So he says in in multiple languages, which goes to show how it does translate in most cultures. Most cultures will laugh at similar things. It seems.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, you know, the universal stuff is is really oftentimes the the kind of physical play so tickling play fighting slapstick because it doesn't require cultural norms it doesn't sure. require language uh the the thing about um when you move away from that now you have to find universals and um and there are universals out there in the world you know the sort of keystone cops is kind of a universal, right? You know, because of the 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 sort of love hate, you know, f- people have with regard to the police across cultures, and uh, and but but other things don't don't translate very well because they're just so culturally specific, right? Right, or topical, or whatever.
1: All right, so let's let's dive some more into it. Again, the book that I want to dive into that's your most recent is Stick to Business. But the Masters of Comedy can teach you about breaking rules, being fearless, and building a serious career. We're going to look at it from a small business perspective. And then you opened it up with the highlights of these. I want to dig into it. Um, I was mentioning that, you know, for me, creativity is such a critical component to being successful in business. Yet most people, uh, as we grow to be adults, we we shut that off. We, uh, we put that in the box with the crayons. And we don't tap into that and so when i read about your work and and did the research it seems like again this focus on humor helps us tap into that right
0: yeah i mean i think in two ways so the the obvious way is being in a good mood helps you be creative so being happy being being um amused broadens your perspective and, and having a broad perspective allows you to be more creative because it allows you to take two things that don't seeming, seemingly go together and put them together. Okay,
1: so you use it not just from a, a philosophy, but you also use it as a technique to put you in the right frame of mind.
0: I, yeah, I think that it's important to feel good if you have problems to solve. The research, the behavioral research on this is incredibly clear the experimental research supports this also is this that positive the negative emotions tend to narrow our focus and positive emotions tend to broaden our focus and having a broader focus for creative endeavors is is better absolutely yeah
1: i trigger i trigger it with music sometimes uh and so go ahead how do you trigger how do you trigger it with humor how, how do you share some advice on how i could tap into that to trigger oh uh,
0: well i think of humor as a as a special case you know so to me i think if music does it then you should be music if for me it's a cappuccino in the morning you know that that deliciousness and little bit of uh, caffeine just gets me in a little bit of a positive mood mm-hmm. but but also there is this element of um, sometimes the creative tasks will be done alone and in solitude and sometimes it's done with others. And so uh, when I first started studying comedy, I had a, a conversation with a, a member of a, a, a duo, a comedy duo team, writing team. And he said to me one day, we we're on a phone call and he said to me, he said, Pete, do you want to know the secret to good comedy? And I said, uh, yeah. <laughs> he said. Long leisurely lunches. Hmm. When my partner and I are stuck on a scene or a bit, we go out to lunch. We sit outside in a cafe and we order good food and we just talk and we end up laughing and having fun and working through these ideas. But it doesn't feel like work, it's pleasurable. And, in, you know, inevitably, we're going to have a breakthrough, and so I think that that's an important thing b j novak, uh, one of the the minds behind the office he he plays Ryan the temp in the office, but he's he's a writer and producer for the show he He believes it's his job to feel good before he goes to his job mm, okay. and so I think that that's sort of a, a basic way to try to be more creative, but there, that's not the only path there's actually i think many, many paths so. One is is to be able to start to think differently. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So chapter one in Stick to Business is called Reverse It. And it's about a technique that comedians either naturally have or know, or they learn right away. It's kind of comedy 101. And that's, th- that's thinking in reverse, to produce an opposing perspective. And a lot of comedy bits have this reversal to it. You know, so Henny Youngman, the king of the one-liners, said that when he read about the dangers of drinking, he gave up. What's the term for giving up drinking? Um, oh, yeah. He went sober. Or he went sober. or Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So, so that you know, that's what you would think would happen. But he creates comedy, and he says, "I gave up reading." or so the reversal in nice. in effect. You know, um Chris Rock in his recent Netflix special, Tambourine, talks about the benefits of of bullies in a world that that thinks the bullies are bad, Chris Rock points out to comedic effect why bullies are good. You know, they help you prepare for a, a very challenging, you know, tough world. Right. Well, thinking in reverse can be useful in business also. So for example, for years and years and years, the health and fitness industry talked about how easy it is to lose weight and get fit. And as a result, you get stupid products like Tony shoes and (laughs) the Shake Weight and and so on. Well, along comes um, uh, Beachbody and P90X and Tony Horton, who says, it's not easy to get in shape. It's insanely difficult. And um, they put forth these workouts that were 60 minutes long six days a week had names like the ab ripper and so on right they executed a reversal where they where the entire industry was talking about easy and they started talking about difficult and they showed real results p90x ended up being ends up being worth about 200 million dollars to its parent company Beachbody. you know it made it made tony horton a household name and at its peak P90X was the most pirated set of DVDs in the world. Amazing. Yeah.
1: This is Henry Lopez with a brief interruption to introduce you to our sponsor, LinkedIn Jobs. Small businesses have unique needs. And despite the current uncertainty, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. A couple of things I personally find extremely useful about LinkedIn Jobs include the job description templates and the skills keywords. It makes it easy and fast for me to post a job opening and start receiving qualified candidates. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified members every day so that it's seen by people looking for jobs like yours. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay for what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash how. Again, that's linkedin.com slash H-O-W to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. And again, that speaks to that construct of comedy that you find of reversal is what you're saying. That, that's how it, That's another way it can apply in that example to the marketing of a product.
0: Yes, I'll give you another quick one. And this one I think is very important for small businesses. And and so this this the the lesson I call create a chasm. And what it is is that the average stand-up comedian, you know, is is always at risk of getting in trouble for a joke that he or she is is going to tell, right? That they're gonna get in trouble on Twitter or something like that. But you know what? even when some people are unhappy with their joke, they're going to keep telling that joke if their audience is laughing. Mm -hmm. What they recognize, that I think the average business person doesn't, is that in a world of people who want hot tea or iced tea, if you try to make everyone happy by serving them warm tea, you make no one happy. (laughs) And so what comedians are good at is figuring out what temperature their audience wants, and then they deliver it because they care that their audience is delighted and they don't care about their non-audience. And so, you know, almost every really good business starts off with more of a niche and, and is interested in, in serving hot tea or iced tea and not warm tea. I'll give you another fitness example if I can. And that's Barry's Boot Camp. So, your listener may not be uh, aware of Barry's. They're, they're in New York and Los Angeles and London and, and, and in these kind of big, sort of more cosmopolitan cities. And Barry's is a lot like P90X, you know, sprints on the treadmill and floor exercises, calisthenics, weights. It's, it's a, it is a tough workout. But that's not what sets Barry's apart. What sets Barry's apart is the is the experience of going there. So there's one down the street from where I'm living and I, I went there one day. And the first thing is that Barry's is lit in this red light. Hmm. And it's really bizarre, right? That, um, that uh, in this red light, but what you realize is you look fabulous in red light. You look tanned, you look ripped, I suspect. You do. It's why the red light district is called the red light district. Ah, did not know that. Yes, because it just it it your your blemishes go away. It's just you know it just you look fantastic. The second thing is the music is turned way up. It's like working out between the lights and the type of music and the volume of the music. It's like working out in a nightclub. Interesting, right? And Jake Gyllenhaal and and uh, Kim Kardashian have been known to go to Barry's boot camp and so on. It was so loud. I went to the front desk and I asked if I If they have (laughs) earplugs and they do, right? Like, you know, it's that kind of thing. And then the last thing is because you look so good and you feel so good, men are allowed to take off their shirts and women work out in like just a sports bra in there. It's not a context. It's not a room for everyone, but for the people who like that kind of thing, who want to work out in a club like atmosphere, half naked, it is the place to go, and so if Barry's turn down the volume and change the lighting in order to make my middle aged person happy, then they lose Jake Gyllenhaal and Kim Kardashian, and so they're they're very good at creating a chasm in the same way that that um, Bill Burr or Doug Stanhope or Joan Rivers or Sarah Silverman are good at creating a chasm. Yeah.
1: Great examples. Great takeaways. Huge, huge takeaway, especially as you articulated when we're starting in business. So many people I work with make the mistake of trying to, to be too broad, the shotgun approach, and we have to niche down. But that's it's so critical to the take away there of focusing on that target audience and not caring about anybody else. To, I mean, within reason, right? But that super hyper focus is what it takes to be successful, especially when you're launching a business
0: yeah i mean Alec, i'm not suggesting you do harm to your non-audience but i'm just saying is that if your non-audience isn't happy it might actually suggest that you're doing something right
1: agreed agreed
0: you were talking about in a recent
1: episode of your podcast and you touched on this already but i thought it was so appropriate that you you explained that comics are in your observation outsiders mm. and yes. all that that again is so analogous to entrepreneurs and business owners we our, we put ourselves in a position of outsiders if for no other reason that typically when we first start a business in particular, our sphere of influence, our circle, our friends and our family, they have no idea what this is all
0: about. And we feel like outsiders, but that's what it takes, right? Absolutely. I think you need an outsider perspective in order to move away from the status quo. You know, I mean, right? Uber happens because someone says, this is ridiculous. There's got to be a better way. You know, this is not something who's just accepts that the world, a world of bad taxi service is, is okay. And oh, well, that's just the way it is. And so having an outsider perspective is useful because you identify opportunities that you wouldn't normally identify. And you become more of an outsider because you don't listen to the people who say, oh, that'll never work. Well, there's taxis, why, why on earth would you do that? I think it's a good reminder that almost any world-changing innovation seemed crazy when it was first introduced. There was resistance to the car, to the telephone. I mean, think about Airbnb. When Airbnb was launched, people were like, this is ridiculous. You're going to let a stranger live in your house? No one's going to do this. And what it realizes is that, that, no, no, there's some people who are comfortable with that. There's some people who want that. And then we're going to serve them. And then we're going to build this as necessary to encompass more and more people and to get and to fit more and more people's needs. I agree with you. Now, the problem, of course, is that the worst ideas also seem crazy. That's right. That's the, that's the challenge in all of this. Is that <laughs> there, the best there ideas... The, yeah, there's that's <laughs> there's why the, the rub. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's exactly right. But even something like podcast. Think about podcasts. People would go, when podcasts, people are like, um, yeah, there's already something It's called the radio. (laughs) And they're like, why would I want to listen to something when I can actually watch it? You know what I mean? And so, um, you know, but but this is something that, that the early adopters, which, by the way, you know who the early adopters of podcasts were? I don't. Comedians. Hmm. Because one of the things, comedians are often early adopters in general. They were early adopters to social media, to podcasts, because what they're doing, first of all, they're very comfortable taking risks. Right. They don't care what other people think of them. And then the other one is they recognize that there's a world of gatekeepers. I see. You know, comedy bookers and so on, comedy club managers and so on. And so these new innovations allowed them to go direct to consumer. Hmm. They're they're the innovation is on the distribution side of things. Right, great point.
1: All right, I want to come back uh, before we move on on decision making and how this approach to humor or bringing humor into it helps with decision making. I know that I've been trying to apply it myself. I mean, if I'm in a tense negotiation or we've got a hard decision to make it's not that we turn it into a joke. And that's the thing I want to make sure our listeners don't take away from what we're talking about here. Cause I don't think that's what we're saying or you're saying, but, but, but when I can bring some humor to things, it usually it takes away that tension that as you articulated with going to lunch, it allows for progress to be made on decision-making or getting through a, a roadblock in a negotiation. What are your thoughts there?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's, there's certainly some, some research that suggests that, again, when you do it adeptly, uh, comedy can be disarming. You know, that is that it, it sort of signals that we are close, right? When we're both laughing at something, it suggests we see the world in the same way. And, and, and sometimes joking is a way to signal that something's not that serious, You know that, especially when you you talk about like a negotiation, for example, there's this sort of adversarial element to it. But a bit of comedy can make it a more affiliative, so -hmm. to speak. Yeah. The um, the other way is to to do something that makes it close to comedy, but it's not comedy per se. So I'll, I'll give you an example of this. So I this is an extension of that idea of the reversal. So when I work with companies. I will sometimes do a task that is a reversal in the sense of of uh, a brainstorming task. I call it shitstorming. And so, think about what is the problem with brainstorming. Well, there's lots of problems with brainstorming, but one of the big problems with brainstorming is people edit their answers. They don't. They don't really come up with crazy ideas. Hey, we, even don't if that's we don't sound stupid. We don't want to get rejected. Absolutely. Yes. So in a shitstorming task, you are asked to come up with truly terrible ideas. Worst ideas. Awful ideas. Well, think about failing at 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 that task. That's not that threatening. What's someone going to say to you? Oh, you're not doing very well. Those aren't very bad ideas, right? right. It doesn't you don't have that same concern. Secondly, shitstorming's a lot of fun. And so people lean into the task, and they have fun with it, and they riff on each other, and they build on each other's ideas. They're actually less critical to themselves and to others. And then it has this third benefit that's often unanticipated. And this is where you get to to the point you were talking about being nonconformist and seeing the world differently, is someone at some point might say, you know, that's so crazy. Mm-hmm. That idea is so crazy, it might actually work. And so um, it's at the very least a very good warm-up for a more traditional kind of problem-solving session. Yeah, no, But it's that. one that has both this sort of comedic element to it where there's lots of laughs, but it also has this sort of underlying comedic thinking that goes into it. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, No, it's a great exercise. Thanks for sharing that. All right, as I
1: wrap it up here, I've kind of asked this already, but again, the thing I was going through my head is people thinking, well, I'm not funny. I don't have a funny bone in my body. I think we've articulated enough that this isn't about becoming a comedian or telling jokes, but let me ask it this way. How do you suggest to people in business that they start to take
0: and bring humor into it? So I think the way to do it is to think more like an improviser. So when, when people say to me, how do I become funnier? I, you know, I could say, well, let me teach you the benign violation theory and then you can apply it. Mm-hmm. But I don't, of course. What I say is, I think you should take an improv class. And the reason that I, that I suggest this is that what improv is designed to do is to create comedy out of nothing. Mm-hmm. That they're gonna teach you a set of rules and perspectives that's going to help you facilitate funny moments that come out of natural moments. And um, and the other beautiful thing about learning the techniques of improv is that they're useful beyond just having fun, funny conversations with people, but most of our life is spent improvisationally, you know? So, for example... You know you have prepared in advance questions and things that you want to cover, but this conversation is largely improvisational, where you change the question you ask, how you ask it, when you ask it, um, based upon what's happening. Right? Where there's a, a certain level of comfort and flexibility, um, designed to help facilitate this shared goal, which is to create an episode that is enlightening and and entertaining, and so. I think that that the improvisational skills are super important for being funny being funny in the moment rather than writing a canned joke that you tell the same joke over and over again right dads are are notorious for just telling <laughs> the same dad joke over and over again and, and then the other one is it just helps you be a better manager it helps you be a better customer service agent it helps you be a better parent it helps you be a a better nearly everything because So much of life is just happening unscripted. Yeah. And the better you get at
1: those unscripted moments, at getting unstuck, on solving a problem, I I can see where it helps with all of that as well, Peter.
0: Indeed, especially because we were talking about creativity at the outset. But really what matters, I like to say ideas are cheap. What really matters is the execution. Agreed. And almost always you need a team, you know, that, that even like we talk about the lone genius, you know, the Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle is a comedic genius. Okay. Yes, he is. But he needed Neil Brennan Mm -hmm. as a writer and producer to co-create Chappelle show. One of the greatest sketch shows ever made. Right. And even Dave Chappelle needs an audience to try out his material in order to develop into something that's worthy of a Netflix special. And so having strong improvisational skills is going to help with the collaboration that's necessary to turn a a creative idea into an innovation. Wonderful. Great stuff. All right, we've been doing a deeper dive here on the book
1: again, which is called Stick to Business, What the Masters of Comedy Can Teach You About Breaking Rules being fearless and building a serious career. Uh, who did you write this book for?
0: I wrote it for your audience, to be honest. I, I wrote it for for um, people who who are entrepreneurial minded and looking to build a business. And then I built it, excuse me, I, I wrote it for people who work in a more structured corporate environment, who want to start to push a little bit more and to try to uh, shake things up a little bit. Good stuff. Besides your books, is there a book that comes to mind
1: that you would recommend?
0: You know, based upon my earlier thought about innovation, there's a book that had a really profound effect on me when I, when I was launching the humor research lab, it's actually part of the reason I launched the lab. It's a book by uh, Scott Belsky and it's called Making Ideas Happen. There's lots of books about making ideas, but there are many fewer about executing those ideas. And it's a really thoughtful book about building culture, about getting help, and, um, and the different techniques that you want to do to try to facilitate building something. And so I, I found that book to be really, really quite useful and something that I've now internalized. I, I regularly, when I want to execute something, I think about how I can make a team, how I want to structure that team, what kind of help do I need, especially in uh, in skill sets that I lack. Yeah,
1: fantastic. Thanks for that recommendation. It, uh, again, it speaks to that that point that ideas relatively are the easy part; is the execution that I have found to be the harder part.
0: Yeah, and one of the things that I think is important, and we see this, for example, in in comedy, is the value that comes from having diverse perspectives that, um, that really good comedy, right? So, so Dave Chappelle, uh, you know, has, uh, has a white partner, right? In order to make a sketch show that tackles racial issues really, really well. Yep. And so the notion of how do you, how do you build a diverse team? And then how do you make sure that those diverse voices feel included? And I think that, that really good comedy comes out of, out of that perspective.
1: Great stuff. Peter, what's, uh, what's one thing you want to stick away from this conversation we've had about applying humor to help us start or grow a business.
0: I think the major thing is, is it's, it doesn't matter where you're starting out. You know, some people I think have good instincts and kind of think of themselves as kind of creative people. I believe that everybody has the ability to become an original problem solver. It may take a little bit more work for some folks and I think that though that you can start to learn these techniques. Things as simple as recognizing that creative ideas don't come out of nowhere, they come out of sort of a systematic approach to it. And so, I would say the biggest thing that you can take away from this is to start thinking of yourself as a creative person. And if you start thinking of yourself as a creative person, you'll start to behave like creative people do. Yeah,
1: agreed. That, that's, that's such a huge takeaway for me. I think we are all innately creative. It's just it gets buried for all kinds of different reasons that we could do yes. another episode about. And the book does, and as we've talked about and you've shared today, does a great job of helping us connect from it from a humorous perspective to connect into that creativity and how we can apply it to business. Great stuff. Where do you want us to go online to find out more?
0: Well, the book's on Amazon, like every other book on the planet. And um, otherwise, for more about me, petermcgraw.org. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Peter McGraw. And uh, obviously, I'm happy to connect with people on LinkedIn. I, I like to do that. Wonderful. Peter, this has been a great conversation. Fascinating. I go on for
1: another hour. Thanks so much for taking the time to be with me and uh, with sharing these thoughts and
0: ideas. Uh, Henry, you, uh, you're very kind, and I, I appreciate your time and your efforts.
1: This is Henry Lopez, and thanks for listening to this episode of The How a Business. My guest today, again, was Dr. Peter McGraw. We release new episodes every Monday morning, and you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at our website, TheHowOfBusiness.com, or just text the word biz, B-I-Z, to 31996, and I'll send you a link with
0: more information. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to The How of Business. For more information, links, and other resources, please visit TheHowOfBusiness.com.